You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. So glad to have you this morning and that we get to worship together and look at God's word together. So would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. That's the text uh, that the Lord providentially puts before us this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. And um, if you're new here, um, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. What we're going to do is we're going to spend the next hour um, looking at the Word of God and taking the text uh, that God has put before us, and um, and we're doing so as we make our way verse by verse through this gospel. Um, what we do is called exposition, where we're literally just exposing what God has said in His Word, and we seek to understand what He says in his word by, by what he says. And, um, and we're excited to do this once a week um, together. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it this past week, and I think about how much we need um, the word uh, in our lives. And I think about the fact that we have um, so many hours in our week that are designated for other things. Uh, we can spend an hour sitting on Facebook and kind of forget where we are for one hour a week, right? You can get lost in a show and consume uh, multiple uh, shows and even extend to multiple hours per week, right? Um, and so one hour per week is what it takes for us to understand the next portion of Scripture as we make our way uh, through this gospel and really is not even enough to sustain you um, spiritually for a week. Uh, you need to not only have one hour a week corporately in the word of God, um, which is not very much, even though your flesh wants to fight against it, right? Um, but you also need daily Bible reading um, once every single day in order to sustain um, your spiritual growth. And so it's really important that you're, um, th- that, you know, you're here as you uh, hear the word of God once a week for an hour. And then also... Um, that you're reading daily, which leads us um, really before we before we read, just want to make mention of our daily Bible reading plan. Um, have you guys been doing it? Yes. All right. All right. And um, I've loved it so far. We're not too far in. Um, if you want to start, um, we began that two year journey. And uh, if you're unaware, I would just encourage you to ask somebody, um, ask somebody in our church on your way out and uh, uh, probably most people could explain to you what this new Bible reading plan is, um, why it's important, and what we're trying to accomplish through it. Um, but it's two years, um, and, and really, I would encourage you to go back and listen to my explanation on it from a couple of weeks ago um, during the sermon. But just to reiterate, so there's uh, no confusion, is that we are reading um, uh, the indicated reading, for instance, First John, right? 
um, for two weeks. And when it says 1 John on that bookmark that you have, it means like all of 1 John, right? Uh, verse uh, chapter one through chapter five, you read the entire book in one sitting. And then you do that every day for two weeks straight, okay? So it's not like I got two weeks to study the book. I'll, I'll just do it um, however I you know, see fit. It's, it's that you're reading literally the same thing over and over again for two weeks straight, right? And uh, then you're gonna do that for two years. And by the end of two years, you'll have done that through the entire New Testament. You really know the New Testament, where to find things, where things are situated in the, in the um, books of, of the New Testament. But here, let me encourage you in this. Don't shorten it, okay? Don't say, um, I can't do it, so I need to just read less. Don't do that, because the whole point of this reading is repetition, okay? That's the entire point of the Bible reading plan. The whole point is repetition. If you eliminate the repetition, um, you'll, you'll, um, you won't fulfill what this plan is actually trying to do, okay? So hopefully by like even day seven now of 1 John or maybe day six or whatever it is, you're like, okay, I, I know what's coming. Uh, I'm becoming familiar what's, with what's being said. And by day 14, you're going to really know that. Um, I wish we could do each book for 30 days, right? Um, and, but maybe we'll do that next time, okay? So don't, don't do less, uh, push yourself. I'm a slow reader, okay? And, um, and I can read through that in about 20 minutes, right? And I was talking to somebody this past week who's read through First John and, and, uh, and is doing the plan with us, and he said that it, it took him about 12 minutes a day to do that, right? I, I really honestly think it's less reading than the one-year Bible reading plan, right? Um, and so just so you know, you can do it, okay? And uh, just kind of push yourself. If you don't have 20 minutes in your day to read God's word, something needs to change, right? Because like I said, and like I said about one hour once a week today, corporately, that's how long it's going to take for us to understand what's in this section, about an hour. And that's how you need at least, uh, you know, probably an hour in the word of God and in uh, prayer combined uh, once a day uh, for you to be spiritually healthy, okay? So 20 minutes is not too much, okay? Uh, 20 minutes and then some, some prayer time. You can do it, and if you, you can't, then you gotta change something else in your life in order for that, to, for that to happen, okay? So nestle up into that portion of scripture for the two weeks. Let that truth steep into your mind, and it will begin to transform your life. And um, you got it? You good? You're going to do it? All right, all right. I'm very enthused about that, I can tell. Let's move into now the passage that the Lord has given us this morning, and it's Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. We're going to read the text. We're going to start with the text. We're going to stay with the text, and the whole time we're going to be in this text, okay? Got it? And, um, and, and it's very clear what the Lord is teaching here as we make our way through Luke's gospel, okay? So verse 31 follow along as I read. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, 
they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, short section, but incredibly significant. Okay? Incredibly simple, but incredibly significant. What we're seeing here in this portion of Scripture, this literary unit that has a main point to it, what we're seeing in this portion is Jesus making clear the details of his death and resurrection. Jesus is making clear here the details of his upcoming death and resurrection. That's exactly what he's doing. He's making known to the disciples exactly what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's, that's the teaching. It's very straightforward. Jesus is making known the details of his upcoming death and resurrection. He's telling the disciples what awaits them in Jerusalem. He is telling the disciples what they can expect. He's telling the disciples here what is uh, going to happen to him and what they are going to observe. He's predicting, right? Or he's forecasting, right? When they used to throw seed, a farmer used to throw seed, they'd call it casting, right? And that's what is happening when someone tells of, of something. You're casting an informa information, right? And he's forecasting. He's doing so before the event actually occurs. He's telling what's going to happen prior to it happening. He's prophesying. He's predicting his suffering, which is why I've entitled the message very simply, Jesus foretells his fate. That's exactly what's happening here. And Jesus is telling the disciples what's going to happen. Do you remember in Luke's gospel, most recently, as we've read through this particular um, section of scripture, Jesus has called anyone who wants to give up their life to come into his kingdom. He lovingly looks at the rich ruler and he says, the ruler says, what must I do to be saved? And he looks at the ruler and he says to the ruler, go and sell everything and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. Jesus invites anyone who wants to be into his kingdom to give up their life, to repent of their sins, and to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins in order to have salvation. And now here in this particular passage, Jesus is telling his disciples that that is all going to happen through him giving himself up for them. Right? He's going to die for them that if they would die to themselves and come to him, they could come into the kingdom. We're, we're going to see that Jesus is going to make salvation possible through his death and resurrection. Right? He, he's required them to believe that he's the Lord. And now he's going to show that he's the Lord through perfectly enduring the cross and raising from the dead. Uh, uh, Jesus is going to make clear here his omniscience. Think about this, his omniscience, him knowing all things with the fact that he is predicting his suffering. His suffering was planned. It was purposeful. 
It, it, was, it was according to God's will. This wasn't on accident. This was foretold in the scriptures. Jesus wasn't a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. The disciples are going to look back down to the specific details, and they're going to say, this is exactly what he said was going to happen. And this was part of God's plan. This was God's plan. This wasn't an accident. This was what Jesus uh, had done was foretold by God. This was the exact plan of God. God purposefully planned this in order to save sinners. Uh, this was the exact plan. He fulfilled it. And so they're going to have confidence when they're in Jerusalem after Jesus is resurrected and comes and explains all of this to him because they're going to know that this was the plan. Uh, this is going to bring them comfort, right? And this shows that Jesus truly is the divine Christ. He's the Messiah. He, he's the one who suffered through to fulfill the Father's plan in order to bring about salvation. And, and Jesus was going to show this. They were going to understand that this wasn't uh, a failure when Jesus died. This was the exact plan of God, and Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, and the disciples would realize that, and Jesus uh, fulfilled exactly what he said. And so this is going to be uh, the proof, even, that he was the Messiah and that they trusted in what he said. Jesus is going to show the disciples that um, this was God's divine plan, that he's the Christ. He's going to show his omniscience. He's going to bring comfort and, uh, and he's going to show that God's plan is being fulfilled in his crucifixion and his resurrection. And he's going to show his authority through this. Think about this. His authority in the sense that whatever he says was going to happen is exactly what is going to happen. And so Jesus, by his authority, is going to the cross. He is not a, uh, an unwilling victim who was overpowered by sin he is a willing sacrifice that knew exactly what was going to take place, purposefully walked into it by the plan of God in order to sacrifice himself for sinners, right? And Jesus is making this clear by giving this explicit prediction or forecasting or foretelling or prophecy uh, prior to going to the cross. And so Jesus is, is just making this clear to the disciples. Uh, there's no other main point to this except him foretelling his death. And so I want you to see this from the passage. I'm not making this up. This is just what the passage says. I don't come up with a, a, a message and say, what do I want to say to these people this week? I say, what does this passage say? And what's the main point of this section? And then let's see how we get to that main point through what this passage actually says. Okay. So in order to make this clear that this is the main point of this text, that it was God's plan all along and Jesus is forecasting his death to prepare the disciples, right? How do we see this as the main point? Well, I've divided the verses into three headings which make this main point clear and how it arises from the text. So we're going to see these three points. Jesus foretells his fate by, number one, showing that his death and resurrection are the fulfillment of the scriptures, right? He's foretelling his fate and saying, this is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He secondly foretells his fate by giving the facts of his sufferings. He's going to give the exact facts of his sufferings. And then thirdly, Luke is going to show us the disciples' failure to see and understand this 
in what Jesus is exactly saying. And that's by the sovereign hand of God that they failed to see it. But it's still a failure to see it. They don't see it, right? And so this is exactly what the text is saying, which leads us exactly to the main point. And that's what this passage is saying. So let's spend some time in it to make these things clear, fulfillment, facts, failure. And to show these things clearly from the text, let's take them one at a time. Number one, what we see in this passage is that Jesus speaks of his sufferings as the fulfillment of the scriptures. The fulfillment of the scriptures. Verse 31, it says this. And taking the 12, he said to them, see what we are, uh, we are going up to where? Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be what? Accomplished. Now, I want to give you a bit of information leading up to this, okay? Leading up to this, Jesus is saying here, and you can see it in verse 31, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going where? Going where? Up to Jerusalem, right? The verse begins here. This, this verse begins this final section in the narrative of the journey to Jerusalem, Okay, so Jesus is, since chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where he's going to be killed. He's been on this journey where he's training the disciples along this journey to Jerusalem. This is called the journey narrative. That's the part of Jesus's life where he's traveling to Jerusalem. And, uh, and he takes the 12 aside, it says here, taking the 12, meaning he's taking them aside to teach them something, to tell them something. There's been crowds, there's been people, there's been uh, more than just the 12 disciples around him, but he's taking the 12 aside and he's doing so as they are going up to Jerusalem. Now, this tells us what's happening here. This is the final ascent before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, okay? Here's where they've been. They've crossed over the river, Jordan, the Jordan River, from Perea to, into Judea, and they're now approaching Jericho. You guys remember when I showed you this map a few weeks ago on the screen, um, and, and it showed you exactly the journey and the path that Jesus was taking, right? And there was two really main paths to get to Jerusalem. And Jesus was taking the one. And if you remember, I told you that from Jericho to Jerusalem, the elevation changed a lot, right? And so when Jesus is saying we're going up, right, this is the final ascent into Jerusalem. And we know exactly where he is, right? And, uh, and, and we also know this to prove the point. And look, if you flip ahead to chapter 19, verse 1, just turn your page, one, one page, uh, turn your book, one page, your Bible, one page. And you see chapter 19, verse 1, it says he entered where? Jericho and was passing through. And so we know exactly where Jesus is. We know exactly where he's going. We know exactly what path he's taking. And we know exactly uh, what's happening. He's literally approaching Jericho, about to make his final ascent into Jerusalem. And if you just look at even chapter 19, verse 11, what does it say there? As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to where? 
Jerusalem. And then look at chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to where? Jerusalem. Uh, we know he's approaching. We know he's making his a final ascent. We know he's about to enter. And it says here in verse 31 that he was taking the 12 aside as they were going up. And so this is exactly what's happening. He's going to make it to Jerusalem in time for the what? Anybody know what? Passover, right? That's the Passover. He's going to make it in time for the Passover. But what the disciples do not know yet is that he is going to be the Passover lamb. He's going to be the only acceptable permanent sacrifice for God to satisfy God's wrath. He's going to abolish the ceremonial laws. He's going to fulfill the moral law. He's going to end the sacrificial system, right? You see in the scriptures where it says that he abolishes the law, and then you see in the scriptures where it says he, he, doesn't, he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it. How are we to, what are we to make of that? Well, he abolishes the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are the laws that were set up because the moral law was broken. Israel had to sacrifice and observe feasts, um, et cetera. And so they were set up in order to temporarily atone for their sin. But by fulfilling the moral law, Jesus, and then dying as the Passover lamb, Jesus was going to abolish the ceremonial laws. You come through Christ to draw near to God. No more ceremonial laws because Jesus on our behalf fulfills the, the moral law. I mean, all of this is happening. The sacrificial system is about to end. And as they approach this Jerusalem, Jesus makes this one final detailed prediction about his fate. That's exactly what he's doing here. And in verse 31, he takes the disciples aside, the 12. He says to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And then he says, everything that is written about who? The Son of Man. Listen now, it's not some things that will be fulfilled. It's not that only a couple of those things will be fulfilled. It's that all things, everything that was written about the Son of Man will be what? Fulfilled, accomplished. And you, it doesn't take a lot for you to understand what he means here. If you were to go through the entire Old Testament, you would see things in the Old Testament that is speaking of Christ who was to come, right? Those are the, that's written through the prophets. And it's not just the prophets like the major prophetic books in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament was really divided into the, the law and the what? Prophets. And so really, Jesus is indicating what was written about um, in the Old Testament period. He's about to accomplish it. And it's not only prophecies. There's also something in the Old Testament called typology, right? which is there are types of Christ. There, there are promises uh, and there are actual realities that are meant to point us to the reality of Christ, right? You have like Abraham sacrificing his son. You have like the uh, Adam and Eve being clothed with animal skin in the garden, right? You have... Um, uh, the, 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 the flood and, and Noah trusting God and, and God um, uh, pouring out his wrath upon, upon sin. You have not only predictions, but you also have 
uh, typology that, that points us to, uh, they're real stories that point us to a greater reality and promise. And Jesus is saying, all of this is going to be fulfilled in what I'm about to do, right? And so you see here, they're going up to Jerusalem and he's gonna accomplish everything that the Old Testament says about him um, explicitly through the prophets and even through the types that point to Christ. And he calls himself here the son of man, right? In verse 31, he says, everything that's written about the son of man through the prophets will be accomplished. Now, what he's saying when he refers to the son of man is what Daniel says in Daniel chapter seven. Whenever Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he is pointing us to what Daniel said in Daniel seven, which speaks of the Messiah. And here's what it says. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of what? Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is speaking of the Messiah. So what Jesus is saying in this little sentence, right, as they're going up to Jerusalem, is that I'm the divine Christ, the Messiah, the one who all the Old Testament was pointing to through the explicit prophecies that you can just read. I mean, read the Old Testament and you can just put these things together that this is pointing to Christ or through the topology that was, that was pointing to who he is, right? And the greater reality and the promise of his coming through real life stories. And he's saying here that this Messiah, who he is, the divine Christ is going to suffer and is going to fulfill all of these things. Now, you got to understand this, that this is intentionally ironic. Because as the Messiah, he is the all-authoritative divine Christ. And yet, how in the world would it be possible that he's going to suffer? That he's going to be uh, killed? That, that he's going to die? That he's going to be rejected? How can the all-authoritative one die, right? The divine Christ, the Messiah, that's not the way that this is supposed to happen. The son of David, the Savior, the Lord. But this is intentional. He is telling the disciples that he is the divine Christ, but they've misunderstood what he's come to do. He's not come to establish a visible, immediate kingdom on the earth. He's come to establish a, a spiritual kingdom, salvation through death. And they're now going to begin to understand that the very purpose the Messiah came, the, the Christ came, was to die on behalf of sinners. So this is what Jesus is saying. This is what he's teaching about. And this is what is in view here. Jesus's authority. He's announcing his impending death. Now, let me tell you this before we move on to the second point. This is typically referred to Jesus's third prediction of his fate. You see that most of your um, subtitles, right, which are not there in the original um, scriptures, say Jesus foretells his death a what? Third time, right? Okay, so you can take those things out, by the way, when you read them. Um, those are not uh, original to the scriptures. Those are put there later in order to kind of just summarize the next literary unit, but sometimes those titles aren't necessarily helpful or right. 
okay? But this is true. This is the third time that he's explicitly telling of his death, okay? And it's important you understand this. He said it the first time in Luke 9, 21 through 22. This is what he said. It says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying this. Here's the prediction that he made the first time. The son of man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be what? Raised. That's the first explicit prediction. Here's the second one, Luke 9, 44 through 45. He says, let these words sink into your ears. I love when he says that, right? Like, do you understand what I'm about to say? The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand the saying. It was concealed to them, they may not, so they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And here now in Luke 18, 31 through 34, this is the third, the third prediction, right? But here's what you also got to understand, that that's the third explicit prediction, right? Uh, in Luke's gospel, there are actually seven times uh, prior to this that Jesus speaks of his death. They're just more broad, right? They're, they're not as explicit. And so what you need to understand is that Jesus has been telling them of his impending death, and each time he's getting more and more specific about it. And here is the last and most detailed explanation. And this particular passage has two other parallel passages in Mark and Matthew. And this one in Luke is the most detailed out of all of those parallel passages. So all that to just tell you, this is the most detailed prediction that Jesus ever gave about his death and resurrection prior to it. There's seven accounts Three of them are really explicit, and this last one has its parallels in Matthew and Mark, and out of all three of those gospels, this is the most detailed. This is the most detailed prediction that Jesus gave to his disciples, and Jesus is going to fulfill this exactly, exactly. Now, here's what you got to understand, is that this is something that they did not expect, and they did not understand the Old Testament in this way. Right? But this is clear when you look back. Listen now. Listen now. You ready? This was foretold. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 53. The most clear prediction about the Christ in the whole Bible. Given 700 years before Christ. Encompasses every single stage of his Messiahship. You got Psalm, and you should go read it. You got Psalm 22. It couldn't be more clear. You have Zechariah chapter 12. You have Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 13. Psalm 2. Psalm 34. Psalm 69. Psalm 110. Exodus 12. I mean, what you find, and I could just go on, is that the Old Testament is full of the predictions of the Messiah. This was God's plan from the very beginning, even since the garden. And he, Jesus will explain every single reference to them. After he raises from the dead, he's going to explain every single reference made in the Old Testament to the disciples and how it points to him, and they're gonna understand it. Can you even imagine being there with Christ while he explained that? Every single Old Testament prophecy and type 
that pointed to him, Jesus would explain. And there aren't just general prophecies. They speak of specifics. His perfect life, his piercings, his words, his silence, his being lifted up on the cross, his garments being divided, him being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that his bones wouldn't be broken, that he'd be given vinegar to drink. I mean, if we had the time, I would just show you all of these things. Jesus isn't referring to here in verse 31 any specific prophecy. He's speaking in general to all of them. So he doesn't have a specific one in mind, but that all of them are being fulfilled. And if you spend any time in the Old Testament yourself, you can see these things for yourself. Don't overcomplicate it or think about it in some mystical way. Literally, God foretold through the mouth and the writings of the prophets the order of the events that the Messiah would come and what specifically would happen. And you can see this clearly as you look back because we now know Christ. And then you can look at the different types, like the Passover, right? Or again, Abraham offering Isaac or God covering Adam and Eve with animal skins. All of those were realities that were pointing to the ultimate promise of the coming of Christ. And Jesus is saying, He's fulfilling all of them. So to summarize this, look at verse 31. Ready? He took the 12. That means he took them aside. He had something to teach them. Verse 31, he said, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem. We know exactly where they are approaching Jericho and beginning the ascent. He says, verse 31, everything, not one thing will go unfulfilled about specifically his death and resurrection that was written about through the prophets, meaning that God spoke through the prophets about what would happen, about the Son of Man, the authoritative divine Christ, right, will be accomplished. Everything. It's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. Pretty clear, huh? And by the way, this isn't just his plan. This is the Father's plan. Remember what Jesus says in John 6? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but what? The will of him who sent me. This is the Father's plan. This is Christ's plan. This is what was written about in the scriptures. In John 12, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's telling the disciples here, this is the Father's plan. This is written through the prophets. This is my plan. This is why I came. The Messiah, the divine Christ, is going to be killed. That's where we're headed. And it's going to fulfill the scriptures perfectly. Right? So Jesus foretells his fate first by pointing us to the fulfillment of the scriptures. The second thing that Jesus points us to is the facts about the suffering. The facts about the suffering, read verses 32 through 33. It says this, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, shamefully treated, and what? Spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Now listen, if you go to Matthew's account and you go to Mark's account of this exact passage, this parallel passage, you could put all those accounts together 
and they supplement each other in order to give us the greater picture, right? You can see uh, it supplements to help um, bring about um, even full, more full clarity. And you can do that with this particular passage. And if you were to go to those accounts, um, you, were to see, you would see other elements about the facts of his suffering, right? And I won't show them to you, but here's what you would do if you put all of those passages together, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, of this particular account, and you were to put all the elements of his suffering that Jesus is speaking of together, here's what you would get, 11 things. One, that he was delivered over to the chief priests, right? Two, that he would be delivered over to the scribes. Three, which is stated in our passage here, look at verse 32, he'd be delivered over to the who? Gentiles, right? Scribes and the, and, uh, the chief priests are in Mark and Matthew's account. Then you got all these elements that he would suffer, right? And here's, here's what they are. Throughout all of this, he's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And then on the third day, he's going to rise. If you take this passage in Mark and Matthew's account and all the parallel accounts, you put them together and with here what we see in Luke's account where we're given, delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, third day rise. And you add Mark and Matthew's account, you get 11 of these items. Delivered to the chief priests, delivered to the scribes, delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, condemned to death, crucified, killed, third day, rise. All of them are what's going to happen to Christ. And he's going to go exactly into all of these elements. And every one of these elements is going to be fulfilled. He's giving the exact facts about what's going to happen. So he's saying everything that was said is going to be fulfilled. And let me tell you everything that's going to happen. And oh, yeah, that will be fulfilled too. Right? And let me just point to the fulfillment of these facts, just quickly, briefly, because you could look at a ton of texts. Let's put chief priests and scribes together. Those are the first two elements. Okay? It's fulfilled in Matthew 27, 22, where it says this. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said to him, let him be what? Crucified. You know who said that? The chief priests and the who? Scribes. The Jews. And he said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, what? Let him be crucified. And John says it this way. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. This wasn't just the Jewish authorities who Jesus is speaking of in a sense with the chief priests and the scribes. It's the Jews in general. The idea is that Jesus is going to be rejected by his own what? People. Right? The, 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 the Jewish leaders are going to reject him. The Jewish people are going to reject him. Even one of his own disciples is going to reject him, right? As Judas betrays him in Matthew 26. And then even his disciples are going to flee. In Matthew 26, it says this, but all this was taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. There it is again. Then all the disciples, what? Left him and fled. He would be betrayed by his own is what Jesus is saying here. 
And this is what Jesus is foretelling, right? And Isaiah 53 speaks of this rejection. You got to understand this. Jesus was going into suffering alone. Let me tell you, you feel lonely? Jesus could not be more lonely. He could not be more lonely. All of his own people would reject him. All of them. That's exactly where he's going. The third aspect, because I said chief priests, scribes, put them together, is that not only the, would the Jews reject him, but he'd be handed over to the who? Gentiles, meaning this, very simple. The Jews didn't have the authority, so the Romans shared in the slaying. They had to go to the Gentiles, to the Rome, Romans, to get permission to kill Jesus. And that's exactly what was going to happen. The Gentiles would reject him too, meaning the Romans. And this would happen. I mean, you could just see it in the story. Then we have, fourthly, that he would be mocked, right? And this would be fulfilled in Luke 22 and 23. Remember, they put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns. And then in Luke 23, it just says it explicitly. The soldiers also did what? Mocked him. And coming up and offering him some sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said what? This is the king of the Jews. He's going to be delivered by the chief priest, the scribes, rejected by his own, delivered over by the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked. And then the next in our list is that he's going to receive shameful treatment. And in the Greek, you know what this means? Treated as a criminal. He's shameful treatment, meaning someone who is guilty, someone who is unrighteous. That's how he's going to be treated. Someone who's done something wrong to break the law. In Luke 23, we see this fulfillment. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was what? misleading the people. So now we got that. But then he says in our list that he was going to be spit upon and flogged. And we'll knock that out with one verse fulfilled in Matthew 27. And then they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. Right? And then we see that the, the flogging was really a custom in the crucifixion process. Then Jesus says he's going to be condemned to death. Look at Matthew 27. They delivered him over to be what? Crucified. And then he said he was going to be crucified. This is all that he's saying in his list about the facts about what's going to happen. He says crucified. And we see that fulfilled in Luke chapter 22. When they came to the place called the skull, there they, what? Crucified him. You don't take this for granted. Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. And guess what happens? Everything that he says. And then on our list, it says he's going to be killed. And we see that fulfilled in Luke chapter 23. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his what? Last. And then finally, he says he's going to resurrect on the third day. If you put all these accounts together, these are the 11 items. And we already know this. You can find it in Luke chapter 24. But before sundown Friday, he was killed. Then before sun, uh, then he stayed in the tomb all day Saturday. And then after sundown Saturday, he rose from the dead. He wasn't dead for three 24-hour periods. He touched all three days. That's how they considered it, three days. And then what did he do after that third day, or on that third day? 
He what? Rose from the dead. I mean, these are just the facts. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, uh, verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked. He'll be shamefully treated. He'll be spit upon. After flogging him, they're going to kill him. And on the third day, he is going to rise. Jesus here is predicting himself, giving explicit details about what is going to happen. This is displaying Jesus's omniscience. You know, Jesus knows everything. He knows what's in your heart. He knows more about you than you know, right? He's omniscient, means he knows what? Everything. You remember the story in John 2 where he says he knows the people's hearts? Remember the story in Matthew 17 where he knew the, the exact location of the coin that would be in the fish's mouth? Remember in John 4 when he had told the woman at the well how many husbands she's had? She had how many? Five. Five. Remember when he spoke in Luke chapter 19, told the disciples exactly where the cult was going to be? Right? Jesus knows everything. He, this is not an accident. He's fulfilling the scriptures perfectly. This was God's plan. This is how he was going to save sinners. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And he walks right into it. This is not an, an accident. He's not a victim. He's the authoritative Messiah who has and will fulfill every detail written about him in the Old Testament. He knows exactly what's going to happen. This is God's plan from the beginning. The disciples need to be prepared. Even though they're going to fail to see, they'll see clearly later that this is his plan to save sinners and they will understand. So he gives this fulfillment of the scriptures. He gives us the facts about the suffering and then thirdly, we see that Luke gives us the disciples fail to see this information. Verse 34, it says this, but they understood what? None of these things. This saying was what? Hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Luke here couldn't be more clear. What Jesus is, what Luke is telling us here is that they didn't see it and he's telling it to us three ways so that we don't miss it like in one sentence, right? He's saying they did not understand. It was hidden from them. They did not, what? Grasp, right? And none of the other parallel accounts give us this information, but Luke does here. And they would later understand, but they don't understand now. And they're going to realize later what Jesus was saying. And Jesus is going to teach them about it after he raises from the dead. So they failed to see it, and this was the Lord's doing, which really goes, points us back to what happened with the rich young ruler. He failed to, to, to follow Christ, and the disciples say, who will? How is it possible? And Jesus says, with man, it's what? Impossible. With God, all things are possible. You need God to open up your mind and your heart to understand the truth of the word and respond to the gospel, Right? And so verse 34 tells us all three of these things. And just to reinforce it, right, we understand that after uh, the, the resurrection, Jesus is going to explain it. But they understood how much of this, none of it. They didn't understand how the Messiah, the divine Christ, who came to establish his kingdom that they expected was going to come, the ruler, the authoritative one, the king, the son of David, was going to die. And now realize, they will realize later this was a spiritual issue. They need spiritual 
restitution. They need to be saved spiritually. They're sinners and they need a savior. They didn't understand it at this point, right? It was hidden from them. Jesus is going to reveal it to them afterwards, but at this point they don't understand. And we see this account. In Luke 24, it says this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, this is the after the this is after the resurrection. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They, they didn't understand. How did this work? A, a, a Messiah, right? The Messiah, the divine Christ coming to be killed. They didn't understand their need, their guilt before God, their sinful condition, and the need for the Christ to come and die and atone for sin and for people to respond in repentance and faith in order to be saved. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he says this, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And look at this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he then what? Interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's gonna make it plain, right? And he's gonna look back at this time of predicting and he's gonna say, here's what was meant. Right? And then you even see in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still what? With you. What do you think he's referring to there? This situation that we're talking about in Luke chapter 18. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be what? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so we see here it was in God's sovereign plan that he would conceal it and then he would fulfill it. And then it was in God's sovereign plan at that point that he would open their minds that they would understand it, that they would look back. But you know what's wonderful? Is that we can look back and see with clarity. Right? That Christ fulfilled the scriptures. That Christ fulfilled all the facts in his suffering. And you can look back and have clarity and to understand why it was necessary that Christ did this. And I pray that God would open your mind, that you would understand this, and that you would be saved. And so here's what you walk away with today as we close. First of all, that this was God's plan from the beginning. You need to understand the gospel like this. You need to have depth in your understanding of the gospel. It's not just a quick, hey, look, um, you know, if you want eternal life, uh, believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Right? It means that Jesus was the divine Christ, that this was God's plan for sinners, that you are a sinner, that you need to repent of your sin in order to believe in Christ, that the evidence of a true believer is that you follow him, right, as Lord. We've been reading in 1 John, whoever says he knows him and does not what? Keep his commandments is a liar. If you say, I am saved, I know Christ, but you don't know his word, you don't follow him, this is crazy to you that you would even sit here and listen to the word of God for an hour. Um, I would seriously reconsider your salvation and question whether or not you know Christ. You, you need to come to a deep knowledge of the gospel and understand why Christ came and what it means to follow him and that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures, that he was the divine Messiah, the son of David, the, the Lord, the, the king that was to come, the anointed one who would make an atonement for sin. 
And then secondly, let me encourage you in the fact that this is the gospel that you need to share. The disciples are understanding this so that they would share it. That this was in the divine plan of God to send his son as a willing sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And this was the plan from the beginning. And that's the way that you need to share it so that people have an understanding of what Christ really accomplished for salvation and um, that he affected it. He did exactly what was meant. And then this should thirdly affect your prayers because no one comes to understand this. And we've seen this in the past two sections without God sovereignly opening up somebody's what? Heart and mind and eyes, right? I mean, this is clear as day. With God, it's impo- uh, man, it's impossible. But with God, it's what? Possible. And here he conceals it from the disciples. And then later on, he reveals it to the disciples. So this needs to affect your understanding of the gospel. This needs to affect your evangelism. And this needs to affect your prayers. And so we see here that Jesus couldn't make this any more clear to the disciples. This is exactly what he's doing. He's predicting He's foretelling his fate. And he shows that he's the fulfillment of the scriptures. He gives the facts of his suffering and the disciples failed to understand it. And this is exactly what the gospel that Paul preached. Let me close with this. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the what? Scriptures. That he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the what? Scriptures. Christ fulfilled everything through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask by your grace in this passage that you would help us to understand. I I pray that you would open eyes. God, the disciples failed to understand this until you revealed it to them. And I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of the people in this room today and that they would understand the gospel. Not in a superficial, pragmatic way that produces false converts, but in a true biblical way that produces real salvation. Thank you for your word that shows us here as you predict this, that you are the divine Christ that this was your perfect plan from the beginning and that you fulfilled every aspect of it. God, help us to look upon the facts and and to realize that you willingly endured suffering for the sake of saving sinners. And, And God, I pray that this would affect how we understand the gospel, that this would affect and change how we share our faith and that this would affect and change how we pray for people's eyes and hearts to be opened to understand the the gospel without which they will not be saved. We need you to do this work. Thank you for your word that enlightens us and gives us knowledge and understanding of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.